many organizations which have the sole purpose of doing good are not led in a very entrepreneurial way, which means are not as transparent or as KPI driven. And I think we as an organization, we benefit a lot from having this mindset. We always want to make very bold decisions and fail as fast as possible because only then we can stay efficient. And we try to basically become independent from donations over time in a way that we try to establish various cash flow channels or revenue streams. We're very well aware that having one revenue channel would be extremely dangerous. This is why we are aiming to set up our organization as a for-profit organization. Welcome to Mission First, the podcast to learn from successful entrepreneurs changing the world for the better. Are you in the first three years of your company? And do you want to save time by avoiding making the same mistakes that lots of entrepreneurs have already done? Then make sure to follow this podcast because you are going to get actionable strategies coming directly from those who have found product market fit and are scaling up fast with their for-profit companies or their NGOs. Think about it as a masterclass about product innovation, business models, leadership, and growth marketing. Bonjour, bonjour. I am Gilles Toussaint. I help entrepreneurs have a bigger impact with this podcast, and I also help mission-driven companies increase their revenue more efficiently with growth marketing and my company, GT Impact. If, as a kid, you dreamt of trying to protect lions and other wild animals at the other side of the world, and now you have a normal job, but you still have such a dream, and you don't know how you could achieve your childhood dream beside your job, this episode is probably for you. If you are already on your way to have an impact on the world with your social organization or your startup, and donations are a part of your revenue streams, and you'd like to learn how to maximize them, then this episode is also for you. Today, I have the huge opportunity to meet Dr. Marlon Brahman, founder of the Ames Foundation. Marlon fell in love with Africa when he was seven years old. Now he works as a venture capitalist, but besides his job, he founded the Ames Foundation, which has the mission to conserve wildlife, protect biodiversity, and make Africa a safer place for animals. After less than two years, they have 16 employees working full-time in reserves on sites in Africa. And Marlon has set his organization with a business model that already collects more than 600,000 of donations per year. So be ready to learn how to start and boost your revenue as a social or non-profit organization. Marlon, thank you very much for being here with me today. How are you? Sure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm pretty well. I'm pretty pumped because I was really looking forward to that podcast. I'm super pumped to have you here too, because, you know, I'm a big fan of animals and big wild animals. It's also on my list to go to Africa at some point. I would You're love more that. than welcome. So I'm really excited. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really happy and excited to discuss about how I can be sure. part of your organization, for example. So tell me a bit, you are the founder of the Amaze Foundation. Do I pronounce that correctly? Uh, yes, well, you, you do. We always refer to it as uh, Amos Foundation and Amos stands for Africa's most endangered species. Uh, so um, what you already explained is 100% uh, correct. Uh, we have a very strong mission, which is uh, we want to make Africa a safer place for animals. And what is also correct is that I'm the founder of the organization, whereas I always have to say that it wasn't only me. I mean, maybe it was me who started it. So I maybe did the very first percent of the entire organization. But the remaining 99% comes not only from me, obviously, but um, also from uh, six further co-founders 
who I already knew for years because I've, I've done business with them. Most of them also very good friends of mine and all are entrepreneurs. So, and I think this is something which is special of Amos as an organization. So we are 100% entrepreneurial led organization. And this is where it all started exactly two years ago. And you already gave, gave some details about where we stand today. So um, it's entirely right. We managed to take over our very first reserve last year. So we are now managing uh, 1,600 hectares of land in South Africa. We have lots of animals there, including rhinos, crocodiles, giraffes, buffaloes, etc., leopards. It's really, it's a mission, yeah, but it's um, at the same time extremely motivating and to sort of uh, live my dream yeah, that, that you truthfully described as a kid's dream. Yeah. To talk about impact, what does it mean for these animals of that reserve? What was there before? What is it that your foundation is actually doing for them? Let me try to answer what we are doing in a, in a structured way. Uh, because I don't want to don't want to get too detailed now. Like after after two minutes of the podcast, maybe let me try to give you a top down uh, view. Um, so we always say we have impact on um, four different ways, or we want to have impact on four different ways with Amos. Um, the very first way is what we call conservation, and this is operational work on the ground. Yeah? So we employ people, we train them, uh, we equip them. Um, we get, uh, we, we take care of, of proper fences. We re-net, we relocate animals to our reserve, which have lived there before, but which were extinguished at that point. And so this is really hands-on operational impact on the ground. And we call it conservation work. The second pillar or the second field where we have impact is very closely linked to how we work on the fundraising side. And I'll come back to that later, but the second field, how we have impact is we try to transfer technologies from our ordinary lives, yeah, of my ordinary life as a venture capitalist, for instance, because I see a lot of technology in many cases, which can be easily applied to the problems of conservation and animal protection and, and biodiversity in Southern Africa. So for instance, we try to detect problems on site and then try to find solutions from our society from our environment here in, in Europe or in the North, North America and Asia to apply to the problems down there. So to give you a more tangible example, for instance, we are currently setting up two different drone projects yeah, with people from our AMIS community. Uh, so people who support us as an organization, both financially, but at the same time, also with their um, knowledge and also with their products. Yeah, in that case, it's uh, drones. We do the same with e-motorbikes, uh, with smart fences. So this is the second type how we have impact just by transferring technologies to Southern Africa. The third part is basically community development. Yeah? So we give jobs to the people down there. So it's not us who work there full time, but it, by now it's even 17 employees we have on site. Yeah? So they are, they are trained and they most importantly have a fixed job. And the fourth uh, way how we have impact is basically we're not active on that fourth way yet. However, um, I think this will be the most impactful way. What we are aiming to do is given that we, and again, yeah, this is also very closely linked to how we actually raise money. The way we work, we are backed by more than 100 entrepreneurs. Yeah? This is also a very exciting and interesting 
um, sort of target group yeah, for entrepreneurs and influential people from Southern Africa, yeah, be it South Africa, be it Namibia, be it Kenya, whatever, Tanzania. And it's as part of our work, we travel to our reserve or in future reserves uh, regularly yeah, with, with community members um, of AMIS. We call these community members guardians, so AMIS guardians. And um, we try to bring them together with influential people in South Africa or in Southern Africa and with a clear objective to, to A, understand them better. Yeah? Because, it, I mean, history has shown that it's probably not the right way if we try to, try to judge from Europe yeah, um, how to behave in, in South African politics or how to mitigate corruption, etc. So I think the better way is to make friends sort of with the influential people in Southern Africa and thereby A, understand them better and B, maybe also contribute to changing their minds and their perspectives on things like poaching, corruption, trafficking. So all these, these things. And these are the four ways by means of which we want to have an impact. Good. So usually I ask a lot about the story of the project because you send me such exhaustive list of really cool advice. And some of them are actually covering the topic of starting this company. I'd like to jump directly in these advice and the, the topic, the angles we try to, to focus on is how to raise an NGO with 600,000 euros per year in funding and applying operations on site with, you said it, you said two years, did you say two exactly. years ago? We started basically beginning of 2020. Okay. Yeah. And then was COVID as everybody knows. Yeah. So we actually had a tough start if because it, just the legal process took us half a year. Whereas normally it takes eight weeks or so, yeah, which was just because of, of COVID. So this is already, you know, a really impressive numbers to, to note that after two years, you, you managed to raise 600,000 euros per year. So let's start with, you know, the first advice you sent me, which is actually related to the starts, which is commit time to the project. So can you explain us a bit about that? And probably it's a good idea to explain us yeah. to, actually that it's a side project initially. The thing is exactly like everybody says and everybody thinks like we, we don't have time, right? but at the same time, we all want to have an impact and we all probably want to make the world a better place. And basically the decision when I, or the, the point when I decided to start this entire project was end of 2019, when I was sitting with a friend of mine in Namibia in the middle of nowhere, and I recently explained to him that animals are my huge passion and I really want to do something to protect them and, and have an impact. In the same moment, I explained to him that I cannot do that right now because A, I don't have time. Yeah? B, I don't have the network. C, I don't have the funds. D, I don't have the knowledge. Yeah? So basically, I perfectly explained to him why I am not the right or why I back then was not the right person at the right time to start such a project. And then he looked at me and he said, okay, but look, if this is your general attitude towards having an impact, you will never do it. Because obviously, uh, if you go five years down the road, then again, uh, you will sit there and you will tell yourself, well, I don't have the time. I don't have resources. I don't have whatever. Uh, you always find a missing piece. But eventually, it just boils down to making a tough decision. Yeah. So if you really want to do that, make the decision and commit time to it. Yeah. No matter what, just commit to yourself. Yeah. You don't need to promise any third person, but just to yourself. You promise yourself each week, I will dedicate X and Y amount of time to this project and then just do it. And obviously you will probably be faster if you started in five years from now, yeah, because by then you will have different expertise, etc. But at the same time, you can also look at, look at it differently. Namely, you are very much faster today than you would have been five years ago. And at the same time, you are on a time critical mission 
So um, you better get started now. Yeah. So um, this is what, what he said to me. And then I promised to him to dedicate time to the project. And I also committed it to myself, not knowing back then what I was actually going to do. So I just said, I just told myself, okay, I will dedicate back then it was five hours per week to my personal animal conservation project, not knowing what it will be or what it was like just this time commitment was the very first step of this journey. And what are the first steps you've done with these five hours? Yeah, look, I think to be honest, I never worked five hours a week for the project because I dived into it and then it was all of a sudden it was way more than 10 hours. And now I would say it's even 20. So I never, I, I never had a problem really checking on that commitment. But so how did it all start? Basically, it was end of December 2020 after I was in Africa. I was traveling through Southern Africa for a couple of months and only doing conservation projects, animal protection in Namibia. I was doing an anti-poaching training in South Africa. So I really spent a lot of time with people from the conservation sort of industry yeah, and also with very renowned conservationists. And I just learned a lot. Yeah, I really have to say I learned a lot. And you were in a break at yeah, that period. Exactly, exactly. I, was, exactly. I left my old company in summer 2019. And then I committed, yeah, eventually it was a four-month period of time to traveling in South Africa or Southern Africa. I was in Zimbabwe and Namibia and in South Africa back then. And I had a lot of great conservations, yeah, which uh, conversations, sorry, too many conservation, but uh, too, a lot of conversations yeah, with super inspiring people on the ground. Yeah. And I realized that they were extremely good in operational conservation work. But at the same time, they all lacked this sort of entrepreneurial mindset and this entrepreneurial perspective. And they had no clue how to finance their operations. Yeah? They had no clue how to set it up legally. And not because they were not interested or because they were dumb or whatsoever. Obviously not. It was just that they had a totally different perspective and interest in this entire work. And then my idea back then was, okay, if I want to want to have an impact, the best way would be if I focus on my strength and try to help these people with what I can do best, which is setting up legal structures, fundraising, yeah, because I do it for a living, basically. If you work in the venture capital scene, you need to be good in setting up business models or evaluating them, setting them up, sometimes even obviously fundraising yeah, for your own fund, but also supporting your portfolio company. So I do it for a living anyway. So why don't I focus on these strengths and then support organizations like those which I met on my time during my travels? And as I said, it was end of December 2020 when I was sitting in Cape Town, basically, and I made the decision I will commit time to it. And the first thing I did was I called 10 friends of mine and told them a very simple story. And the story was, guys, as you know, I was traveling for the last four months and I was only dealing with nature conservation and animals and I realized a few things. A, the world will have lost a lot of animals if we continue like this. Yeah. So for instance, we lost during the last 30 years, 99% of the rhino population. Yeah. We lost way more than 50% of the elephant population, way more than 60% of the wild lion population. So we are basically, the world is set on fire yeah, and no one really knows it. And so I told them, guys, we have a problem. It's a massive problem. Yeah, it's way far away, but we have a problem. And I have an idea and the idea is, I want to collect money. Obviously, I will give money like myself, yeah. But I want to collect 30,000 euros from 10 people, so 3K per person. And I chip in another 10 or 20. And then we have a volume of, let's say, 50. And with this 50K, I will support organizations which I have met during my time 
traveling because that wasn't that was my pitch. Yeah, so I, I at the very beginning, I didn't even plan to set up an own organization. I didn't even plan to set up own operations. I was rather saying, I was sort of trying to raise money for a special purpose vehicle or an SPV, uh, which is meant to fund operations of other organizations. But I never had the idea that it could grow so big in such a short period of time when it all started. So this is how I spent my first two days working on Amos. And surprisingly, the feedback was very well. Uh, so. The feedback was a lot of people said, okay, sure, I, I, I'm happy to give you 3K per year, but can I also do more? I was like, yeah, sure, you can do whatever you want. Uh, and other people said, yeah, 3K, obviously I'll give it to you, but at the same time, I want to work with you on that project because you seem to be so passionate about it. I want to learn more about it. So can I also support you operationally? The feedback overall was surprisingly well, and I never expected that when I made the decision to, to call these 10 people. And it was literally the moment I, I noted these 10 names and I ticked them off uh, name after name. And after, afterwards, I looked at the list of these names. And I said, okay, I, I said to myself, I never sold something, let's call it a product yeah, in a way, with such a tremendous positive feedback. Success uh, exactly. <laughs> it was a 100% success rate. I, I never, ever had that in my life, neither before nor since then. And that was how it all started. Then let's go to the second advice you sent, which is in terms of general management, look at it as if it was a normal company, act as an entrepreneur. Mm. So I'd love to hear your situation on that. Yes. What do I mean by that? I mean, um, maybe let me take a small step back uh, before I answer that question and try to give a better impression of how we are organized. So as I said, um, I, uh, uh, being the founder of Amos, I'm, I'm extremely happy to have six further co-founders uh, doing this with me. And we all seven are 100% entrepreneurs. Yeah? So we all work as we've all been working as entrepreneurs our entire lives. And uh, we run that organization. So we have a very entrepreneurial core. At the same time, this list of 10 people who I wanted to support Amos in the very first beginning, which I just mentioned, also consisted exclusively of entrepreneurs. And by now, when I refer to the more than 100 people who support us, these Amos guardians, they are not like formally, not all of them are entrepreneurial or entrepreneurs, but they are all entrepreneurial by heart. So they really, they make brave decisions yeah, they make fast decisions. They want to have a transparent organization. They want to see a clear impact. And they also want to be part of this entire community of like-minded people. So this is basically how Amos is set up. We have very entrepreneurial core and also at the same time, all our funds so far, more than 90% of our funds so far, come from our Amos guardians, whereas all of these guardians or have a very entrepreneurial mindset yeah? because they are founders or partners of venture capital firms or private equity firms. Some of them are, are partners of consulting firms. Even my notary, yeah? she became a Amos guardian because I was pitching the Amos idea to her when I was there for a professional reason. And uh, so she, she got so inspired and she said, look, is there, is there space for me as well? I mean, I'm, I'm obviously I'm not an entrepreneur formally at the same time. I really appreciate what you guys are doing. And so we are really entrepreneurial organization. Um, picking up your second question, uh, what I mean by treating a charity organization as a normal company or as a normal venture, what I mean by that is I think that many organizations which do good yeah, and which have the sole purpose of doing good yeah, are not led in a very entrepreneurial way, which means are not as transparent or as KPI driven 
or as also not as brave as a normal venture. Yeah. And I think we as an organization, we benefit a lot from having this mindset yeah, that we, we try to fail very fast. Yeah, we, we make very bold decisions. Some of them work, some of them don't. But the good news is that we realize if they don't work very quickly, and then we make very rational decisions. So we're not afraid from laying off people who just don't perform. Yeah, so we are very little romantic when it comes to making decisions on how we lead our organization, because we always have in mind, if we really want to achieve this mission to make Africa a safer place for animals, yeah, we cannot make any weak decisions. And we need to have this full transparency because this is basically the, the fundamental if we want to keep our Amos Guardians as a very important funding source. We always want to make very bold decisions and fail as fast as possible because only then uh, we can we can stay efficient. Because otherwise, you won't see progress. Um, at the same time, I think what's also important is to, and this is what I tried to do when I was setting up the core team of seven. What's also important is that you not do it with your best friends in a way, hey, I know you love animals. You want to be part of the entire story, yeah, which is, I think, always a good precondition if you, if you can sort of relate to animals in Africa and conservation in our regard. At the same time, I was clearly looking not only for, let's put it hard, yeah, idealistic animal lovers, but really for people who can relate to the topic, but at the same time have extraordinary skills, yeah, which are not the same as mine. Yeah? For instance, we have an excellent CFO who is also my partner from my main job, namely in my venture capital firm. He's running the finance department at our organization. I mean, he's been doing that for 15 years. Obviously, it's a match. Yeah? At the same time, it's not that I really need to, I never talked someone into this, but I managed at least to, to put the right people on the right seats. And we all have this common denominator. We all are 100% entrepreneurs. However, we all have very different skill sets. And we know that we have different skill sets and we fully appreciate each other's skill sets. So this is, I think, a mandatory if you want to set up a team, which is, yeah, which is successful eventually. And do you have an example of when you said failing yeah. fast? Do you have an example of something that failed fast? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> for instance, what we did is we tried to, to manage the people on site like we would manage a medium level manager in a venture in Germany, which means we rather gave them uh, probably too much freedom and leeway and flexibility. And we learned on a hard way that we need to control them and also direct them way stricter and need to m monitor them more closely than we originally expected. Yeah. So, and we made that mistake and reevaluated our decision yeah, to do it on a monthly or fixed basis. And then they send us a reporting and turned out the reporting was always crap yeah, because they just don't, they never learn how to report. Yeah. And again, yeah, I'm not judging them. I was, I'm just telling that they are not, they're not, they've never been taught in reporting. Yeah. So obviously a wonder the reporting looked like shit uh, at the same time. Yeah. They sometimes made weird decisions because they grew up in an environment, for instance, where money was all also uh, always the, the most precious resource. Yeah? So they're always optimizing. They were always optimizing for spending as little as possible, whereas we are always optimizing for being as fast as possible. And my claim towards them was always, guys, if we need to be fast and this costs us more money, yeah, I promise you, I will find the money. Because eventually our main objective or our main variable for which we are optimizing is speed and efficacy. 
and not spend as little as possible, yeah, because this is what they learned. So there was definitely a mistake, a clear mistake. By now, we shifted it to a bi-weekly. So we are monitoring them way closer. And this was one one management. I don't want to call it mistake. Let's put it, it was a learning, yeah, because we just didn't know it. Too. Adaptation, yeah, learning. Yeah. Thank you for sharing this. It's way clearer. And I think it holds true for probably for most charity organizations because turns out that most charity organizations are operationally like on the ground, not necessarily managed by former McKinsey project managers or former investment bankers or super well-structured business school uh, graduates. Yeah, I mean, usually it's, it is managed by people who have a very, very deep talent for what they do operationally and a massive passion, but they are usually in many cases, not the best when it comes to structure and planning. Yeah, and reporting, mm -hmm. which is something which is also typical from our world, right? Yeah. Going through the third advice, aim for profit, yeah. which is something I also heard like a lot from people who were actually non-profit organization. So just as a, as a reminder, you are a non-profit organization, but then I'm sure you're going to explain to me what you mean by aim for yeah, profit. Yeah, yes and no. So we would never consider us a non-profit organization because I think the term is a bit error prone in a way that we would always say we are a for impact organization. So we are obviously not distributing dividends or major cash outs yeah, to us to run the foundation. Obviously, we all do it for free. However, we want to uh, run the organization as it was supposed to make profit. We try to basically become independent from donations over time in a way that we try to establish various cash flow channels or revenue streams over time. And we do cooperate today with different organizations, like different companies, uh, and they donate money and obviously this is also a donation, but it's not a private donation. So it's also a second revenue stream. They sometimes, there are companies, uh, for instance, uh, Google, which supported us heavily last year with a dedicated program, which is called Google Giving Weeks. And also we are step-by-step step increasing uh, our transactional revenues uh, and transactional revenues comes, for instance, from, from tourism. Yeah, so we send our Amos Guardians to our reserve. They spend a week there. They pay, I think it's uh, three and a half thousand euros uh, per week. If you multiply it by, by 10, yeah. So each journey or each trip to our reserve also gives us a revenue of more than 30K at a gross margin of, I don't know what it is actually to worth. I think it's 70%. Or so so it's, also, it's also one way to become more independent from a single source of revenue or income. We managed to set up our merchandise shop. Yeah, to be honest, our merchandise shop will never become, or most likely, never become our number one revenue stream. It's rather a, it's a nice thing to have, but it's not a, I think it won't be an essential part of our revenue planning in future. And in short, I think we are we're very well aware that having one revenue channel would be extremely dangerous. Yeah. And this is why we are aiming to set up our organization as a for-profit organization. Whereas it is needless to say that all these profits remain within the organization and are supposed to work or to cause such a sort of a flywheel effect. Basically, it speeds up the entire organization and it feeds the entire organization. And this is what, what I meant when I said we want to aim for profit. And then interestingly, and interestingly, this is also really important for our major revenue stream, namely for all the guardians who commit money to us. They clearly want to see that. Yeah, it's not, it's not that they say, okay, guys, you have three years now. And then I, I, they want to see an impact and they want to see that they are not the single source of revenue 
Yeah, so they want to see that we know that we need to become independent over time. When it comes to fundraising, you said know who you want to have on boards. So can you explain me a bit more about this? So basically, we refer to Amos as an invite-only community. So if you want to become an Amos guardian, it is not enough to fill in a check and say, guys, I'm on board, yeah, or uh, fill in a subscription form. But you really need to conduct two interviews with people from the Amos leadership team. And um, this is important for us because we say that uh, probably the biggest asset we have is our community. And we want to keep this community clear. So we don't want to have people within the Amos organization or within the Amos community who want to become part of Amos because, I don't know, let's say they ever wanted to have the phone number or the email address of one of the other guardians and they want to, they want to approach them and sell them, I don't know what. Yeah? So it's, it's really, it's a non-commercial organization with like-minded people. And this is why we are so, I don't want to say strict, but yeah, in a way consequential when it comes to, um, to selecting the people we want to have on board. And this is really important there yeah, because interestingly, what we realize is that, that people who committed 3,000 euros, for instance, in the first year, um, after we, we had one large event, physical event in September 2021, uh, because of COVID, we never managed to get an earlier one. But this was our first basically physical get together. And uh, we were, I think, even more than 100 people who came there. And most of them were Amos Guardians. And there were a few guardians among them who came to me or came to my colleagues afterwards and said, hey, this is so impressive what you guys are doing. Yeah, I never expected this quality of people to be here and level of professionalism after one and a half years back then. Yeah, is there a way, would it be possible to increase my annual commitment? Yeah, which is, I mean, obviously you can't increase your annual commitment. Yeah. And they did that uh, because they had a very good feeling with the community. So um, bottom line, I would even go thus far and say we benefit a lot from being so picky yeah, or so, so careful because the people who are on board yeah, increase their commitment and their identification significantly. Yeah? And so we have a zero, zero churn rate yeah, um, after, I mean, again, after two years, but still it's a zero churn rate, uh, <laughs> which is, I think, also a very good sign for, for the work of, of, of our team uh, when it comes to community engagement but also a clear sign for why this the right decision or why it was the right decision to stay so careful in setting up the, the community. When it comes to fundraising and donations, the next advice you sent was also tell a clear story. Can you explain to me actually how you build your story? You said it's like was any other venture pitch. So how, how do you do it? If, yeah, I mean, I'm happy to give you the full pitch, but this would definitely be too much. But the general <laughs> advice yeah, is um, usually when I tell someone why what we do is important and I want him or her to become part um, of our project, I always start with the problem. Yeah? And the problem is interestingly something which is not well known to most of us, namely, and these are the numbers that I just briefly touched previously, namely that we as a human kind, as humankind, yeah, we almost managed to extinguish rhinos and elephants and lions and pangolins, and there are so many, so many more animals, unfortunately. And most of us in our peer group, in our society, they are aware that there is some sort of problem with nature and animals. And however, most of us don't know how severe it is already. So I really, I really set the ground 
even at that level, maybe because I'm really biased yeah. for that because I wanted to be an assemblologist yeah. when I was a kid. So I've always been into nature and I knew about that you know, 30 years ago already. Yeah. So, but I would have assumed that an entrepreneurship level of people would be there who would, you are usually with people who are like household yeah. impact focused people would actually know about these things, but it's still not clear at the moment. That's frightening, yeah, but it's, it's just not on top of mind, yeah? um, because, um, be, I mean, if a, most people haven't been to Africa, yeah, this is still, it's still true. Uh, still, uh, that's far away yeah? and, and uh, both culturally and also uh, geographically. Those who have been there, they usually went to good reserves yeah, where, where they have those animals and always get, I mean, they get a feeling for it, but usually most people of my peer group, they never talk to conservationists when they were traveling through Kenya, Tanzania, Zimbabwe, Botswana, you name it. Yeah? So they, they still scratch um, the surface of the entire problem. And yes, they are some sort of aware of it, but not entirely. So to answer your question, and it also surprised me, to be honest, we, uh, or most of us still have no clue how severe it is and how big the problem actually is. And I always try to elaborate the problem and say, guys, I, I don't want to blackmail you into this. You know? I just want to set the ground and, and try to make you aware of the entire problem. And usually it's always part of my pitch because it makes it so tangible because I'm, I'm 33 now. Yeah? And I, I always say, look, when I was born on each rhino that we have today, there were 99 more. And this is, and that's a very strong argument yeah? because this makes it very tangible how severe it is and how how destructive the development over the last 30 years has been. And then afterwards, after I after I've set that ground, I, I always explain, look, I have no idea if we as an organization uh, will be the one that solves the problem. But I can definitely promise you yeah, that you won't regret supporting us because I know how committed we are and I know what we do and I know also what we are capable of doing. So I'm not promising because it would just be a bit unprofessional to promise that we are the ones going to solve the problem. I mean, who, who am I? Yeah? But at the same time, what I can always promise is that we're working our ass off yeah, to get this development, I, I, I don't know if it, under control, but at least um, sort of to, to slow down the development yeah? and also to, to have a positive impact at least. Yeah? And then I elaborate how we work. And say, look, we are 100% transparent. We want to bring you to the reserve because we want to show you what we are doing there. Yeah? So it's not that I'm sending you fancy pictures. I mean, I do. But at the same time, I'm inviting you to travel with me or with my colleagues um, to our reserve and check it out yourself. Yeah? And this makes it very tangible. And I think if I sort of need to uh, put, a, put it in a theory, I think uh, obviously it's not a marketing story, yeah? but from a... From a theoretical perspective, we fulfill three needs uh, which are very strong in, in our society, in our peer group at least. Uh, one need is everybody wants to have an impact. Uh, everybody wants to have a positive impact nowadays, at least, in, again, in our peer group, uh, which is, I think, it's generally a good development. So we do that. Yeah, we give people a chance to have an impact, measurable impact. The second thing is we touch the need that, that people want to belong to a community. Yeah? So with Amos, if they manage to get in, yeah, they are part of, a, in, of an invite-only, super entrepreneurial, impact-driven community. 
And they managed to sit in South Africa around the bonfire with other entrepreneurs and super inspiring people. Yeah? So this is the second, the second, let's put it uh, as an argument, yeah, if you will. And the third one is experience. Yeah? We live in an experiential world where experiences are the one and only thing everybody's aiming for these days. Yeah? So we deliver experiences. Yeah? It's not a business model. So it's not that we, we say, okay, we are an experiential company. Yeah? Not at all. But believe me, it's an experience. Yeah? If you are sitting there and you see our rhinos and you see our animals and you sit at the bonfire and you talk to the people on site, and that's a massive experience. Yeah? And then and, and people were literally, people were crying when they saw that the first time when I, I was there with them. Yeah? So this is, it's a massive experience. Uh, and so taken all together, these three things, impact, community, or, or belonging and experience, I think this is definitely a good combination. And it's, uh, it's a strong argument to become part of Amos. I completely understand. So to go back to your advice, which was don't allow everybody to join the operational yes. team. What can you say about this? That's a very interesting part because on the one hand, I really appreciate that a lot of people tell me that they want to help. And they want to get engaged operationally when I tell them what we are doing. And that's a big honor. At the same time, we're not well advised if we would allow everybody to become part of the operating team. Because I think sometimes people sort of, as a very first reaction, they say, look, I'm so pumped. I really want to become part of it. What do I need to do? And they are 100% reliable. And this holds for the first week or maybe for the first month. But then afterwards, yeah. We realized that eventually people were, were maybe pumped in the beginning, but the day to daytime job overcomes them again. And then they're, they're, yeah, then they have a responsibility for something which is really important for us as an organization, but they just don't, they don't perform up to the expectations that we originally initially agreed on. So I must say I've become, uh, because it, it's definitely a development in, in my way of working and also in my way of judging people's motivation. I've become very careful with allowing people to become part of the operating team and also with giving away positions and responsibilities to people who I don't know very well. This was also one learning. Yeah? So because it's easy to say, hey, I love your mission. I like you. I want to be part of it. And it's a totally different story yeah, to work continuously alongside us. 100% independently sometimes to make Amos a stronger organization. This is just, it's, it's super easy to say yes, but it's at the same time has shown that it's mostly not, not necessarily a good idea to allow everybody to, to jump on the boat and become part of it. Again, just pick the people you can rely on 100%. Yeah, there are so many things we could dig into in your interview process and how you do that at the moment. But because we are running out of time, what I'd love to do is to you know, ask you the question that I usually ask the entrepreneurs I have in here. Sure. And so what is the best advice you've been given as an entrepreneur? The best advice I've been given as an entrepreneur? To be honest, I think hire slowly, fire fast, which basically means that be very careful uh, who you, you, you take on board. And once you have doubts yeah, that someone uh, is no longer the right person in the right seat, usually this is the very first sign that this is true. <laughs> and then get rid, get, just, the get, just get rid of him or her as fast as possible because it won't get any better. Obviously in a fair way yeah, still, but just fast because usually it just doesn't get better. Don't like to like listen to your gut feelings in that yeah. case. Which book would you recommend entrepreneurs like you to read or which books have you read recently that you'd recommend us to read? There's one book, 
which I have read at least three times. Probably most of your audience knows it anyway, but my favorite entrepreneurial book is The Hard Thing About Hard Things, written by Ben Horowitz. And particularly there's, I think, two or three pages, which are by far my favorite pages in that book. And this is where he describes the so-called struggle. Because I've been in that situation myself various times when you basically, you always, you, no matter what you do, it always goes wrong. And it, it, the entire adventure looks, everything you do is shit. You have phases basically where, where, where this is the case. And he describes the struggle very well, there, which is basically the time when you, you cannot sleep during night. You are uh, still very tired during the day. You cannot eat, you cannot drink, although you're thirsty. Uh, so this is just a super inspiring book. I can highly recommend it to, to every, everybody who, who's interested in entrepreneurship in whatever way. I totally agree. I mean, I read it, I discovered it last year. It has been on my list for a long mm. time and I read it, I started to read it last year because somebody recommended it as well in the podcast and I must say it was a page turner. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I just read it in a couple of days. It was really, really good. So I can agree on that. So tell us one thing about you that I wouldn't be able to find out online. Yeah, I, I have a story which I never shared, uh, publicly at least. And today I can share that because it's, I think in, in, in German it's verjährt. So it's, <laughs> it's expired, it's expired uh, basically. Um, so it was, a, um, it was in, 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 in Kenya. I was almost arrested and I only managed to get out of the situation because I uh, pretended to be the ambassador of Germany. And the interesting thing is, I did my PhD back then, and in Germany, it's the case that the title, yeah, which is uh, DR uh, uh, for doctor, uh, is put in your in your ID card. And then I had my ID card with me, and I was explaining to these policemen, the guys, you're just about to arrest the German ambassador. And I said, how can you prove? And then I put out my ID card, and I explained to them, look, it's written, yeah, it's, it's crystal clear. Uh, here you see it's DR. Yeah, and I have no idea with what I came up back then for what DR stands for. But apparently I came up with an idea which sort of sounded a bit like <laughs> diplomatic, whatever. And this is how I made it out of that situation. And you will never find that on the internet. But I mean, now you do it before that. You wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Great one. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for all your advice and for sharing that story. For so my best advice, always do your PhD because it helps you out of every police control in Kenya. I think this is if, 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 if one takeaway <laughs> of this episode. It only works if you are from Germany because it's only in Germany that people like <laughs> stick so much attention and have your doctor into, <laughs> maybe, the, maybe, into yeah. your ID card. But to finish on this, where where can people find you? So, I mean, there is a yes. foundation, A-M-E-S-Foundation.com. I will share, of course, all the cool. link on the website and everything. But do you have a specific ask to the people listening to this podcast that you want to share? Well, my specific ask is just to reach out if you have questions or if you have ideas that you want to share with me. Um, there's no specific ask. If this was inspiring to you, uh, feel free to reach out, ideally via LinkedIn. Uh, so I do read my LinkedIn messages. Uh, every now and then. So, um, I share perfect. Your yeah, just, just share my profile, connect with me, talk to me, and then I'm happy to get to know your ideas and questions. Thank you very much, Marlon. Wishing you a nice day and a nice end of the week. Maybe see you soon in Berlin. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. If you like this episode, you can share it with your friends because sharing is caring. And you can give it a five star on Apple podcast because this really helps to make it more visible to other entrepreneurs working on a better future like you. If you are busy and might not have the time to listen to all episodes of this podcast, just a little tip. Sign up for my newsletter on gtimpact.com. You will receive the summary of advice from each episode 
and you will get personal recommendations on which episode you should focus on depending on your current challenges, your industry and your startup stage. Thank you very much and see you next week for the next episode. Have a nice day.